So our first reading is from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 to 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who is born to be king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 to 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Today we stand facing the golden dawn of a new year. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new year, a new hope, a new dawn, a new government, maybe? But who will lead us? Who and what forces will shape our national life together? The European attraction to far-right politics is no new thing. The desire to define oneself by a fusion of national and ethnic identity is not a recent trend. Neither is it merely a 20th century phenomenon. In part, 
It is an outworking of the innate and readily understandable human tendency to feel most comfortable with those who look and sound like those with whom we grew up. Coupled with a fear of those who look and sound different to that which we're used to. But in addition to this, the way in which the European mindset has been shaped over the centuries lends itself to a particular kind of nationalist politics, which recurs in various forms through European history. The flip side to all of this, of course, is the attempted enlightenment of the European project, the desire there to find some expression of unity which transcends national boundaries and finds common ground and unity and stability between nations and peoples who have a history of conflict. The first European project as such was, of course, that enacted by the Romans, who, by virtue of their imperial strength, imposed a political and, to some extent, cultural unity on many of the nations that we would now call Europe. However, the decline of the Roman Empire led to the fragmentation of its constituent parts and the rise of the nation-state as we have come to know it. Many centuries later, the Treaty of Westphalia marked the end of a series of wars that had swept through the Holy Roman Empire during the 16th and early 17th centuries. And whilst it manifestly failed to abolish inter-European warfare, it did succeed in laying the basis for the system of national self-determinism that we still live with down to our current time. The notion of coexisting sovereign states held in check by a balance of power laid the foundations for the Europe that we recognize today. There were three key tenets of the Peace of Westphalia. Firstly, the right of the ruler of each state to determine their own religion. Secondly, freedom of religion for those who wanted to worship in ways other than that determined by the state. And thirdly, the recognition of the exclusive sovereignty of each state over their own lands. And all of the inter-European wars fought since the Treaty of Westphalia have been enacted on the basis of these key tenets. It was in this context that the far-right politics of fascism and more recently neo-fascism have emerged as ideologies committed to the maintenance of ethnic and cultural purity within the confines and borders of the nation-state. Whilst the more moderate end of far-right politics simply opposes uh, policies uh, on uh, immigration and integration, the more extreme end finds itself amenable to methods designed to cleanse and purify the population, uh, purify it of those who might challenge the homogeneity of the nation. And so groups deemed inferior or undesirable or traitorous in some way find themselves ostracized or removed from mainstream society. Many of these far-right groups, from the National Socialists of Germany to the National Fascists of Italy, have sought to equate their stance with some notion of a dawning golden age. And it's here that we start to encounter the forces of religious belief. And it's here we start to hear the impact of passages from the scriptures which include our readings for this morning. So, for example, the Nazi party of Germany defined themselves as the Third Reich. 
The third rule, to put it in English. They believed that the first Reich had been the thousand-year rule over Europe of the Holy Roman Emperors from about 800 to about 1800. The second Reich equated to the German Empire of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and the Third Reich, by this understanding, was a golden age, a dawning new period in European history, beginning in Germany, but destined to spread its good news across all the states of Europe. And this identification of a coming dawning new age was nothing new. In many ways, it finds its origins a thousand years earlier, in the 12th century monk, Joachim of Fiore, who understood the history of the world from beginning to end as being divided into three distinct stages, which he saw as correlating to the three persons of the Trinity. And each of Joachim of Fiore's three stages represented an age of human history ruled over by a relevant person of the Trinity. So the first age was the age of the Father, which he saw as running from the time of Adam, in other words, from creation, to the birth of Jesus. Then the second age was the age of the Son, which ran from the birth of Jesus up to the 12th century, to Joachim's own time. The third age, the age of the Spirit, was the dawning new age of enlightenment that he believed was coming into being in his own time. In this way, Joachim located himself on the cusp of a transition with the world moving from the age of the sun into the age of the spirit. And this idea of dividing history into ages or dispensations entered deep into European psychology. And it comes out again and again in both politics and theology as people continually believe themselves to be living on the cusp of the dawning new golden age that is coming into being in their midst. So whether it's the Third Reich of the German Nazis or the Age of Aquarius of the New Age movement or the Rosicrucian mystery sect or the imminent millennium of Christian fundamentalist interpretations of the book of Revelation, people continually convince themselves that the New Age is dawning and it is dawning in their time and specifically it is dawning amongst their people. Interestingly, the Rosicrucian movement gave birth to an occult organization known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, co-founded by my namesake, William Woodman, no relation, along with a couple of others. It attracted many celebrity members, including allegedly Arthur Conan Doyle, Alistair Crowley and E. Nesbitt, but that may not be true. The name that they chose, though, with its language of Golden Dawn, picks up on this hope of a dawning new age. And it's a phrase which echoes down to today, as does the association of far-right politics with the idea of a golden dawning new age. The Golden Dawn political party in Greece is simply the latest expression, combining extreme nationalistic ideology with a commitment to establishing a new world through violence and exclusivism. This is the same language that we find in the book of Isaiah, who prophesied to the people of Israel to offer them a vision of the future where their nation was purified and remade and reborn. Isaiah says to Israel that nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
The hope that Isaiah holds before the broken and dispirited people of Israel languishing in exile in Babylon is that a new age is coming with the golden dawn of a nation reborn rising ahead of them. It's easy for us to be blind to it because we hear this passage through the lens of Handel's Messiah. O thou that tellest glad tidings to Zion lift up. That for me is Christmas. Um, every year when I was a child, my mum, who has a... Those of you who have ever heard me sing may be surprised to know my mum has a beautiful singing voice. And my grandma used to play the piano. And every year they would perform O Thou That Tellest in church. And I would have to sit through endless hours of practice doing my homework whilst mum rehearsed this. Anyway, it, it's so easy for us to hear all this through the lens of Handel's Messiah. But in its original context... This is as revolutionary a piece of nationalistic propaganda as any contemporary political tract or rallying speech. The nation that has been overrun by the foreign power of Babylon, the nation that has been compromised by the experience of exile, is called by Isaiah, no, is called by God, no less, to set its eyes on a hope that is ahead of them. Because there lies a future where they rise above those who have trampled them. Hear it again. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. It is often said... That nationalistic, the nationalistic theological perspective that was dominant in the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus was forged in the crucible of Babylonian exile some 600 years earlier. This, of course, is the period in which the book of Isaiah took its shape. And if Isaiah 60 is anything to go by, the theology that took shape in that period is a theology of nationalism. It's a theology focused around the rise of a so-called people of God, a chosen nation called to be a blessing to the world. And it is this theology of patriotism, this fusion of religion with the politics of nationalism that we find alive and well in our world today. From My school hymn, Blake's Jerusalem, stirringly and radically reinterpreting the chosen nation ideology for a world dominated by the British Empire. To the American dream of a new world born in our midst, welcoming the tired, the poor, the huddled masses of the world into the arms of America, one nation under God. The use of religion to justify nationalism is as vibrant today as it was in the 6th century before Christ. And it is to a world where nationalism and religion have become synonymous that the Christ child comes. It is to a world where monarchy is hereditary that the Christ child comes. It is to a world where the most important thing about a person is who their father and mother are, that the Christ child comes. It is to a world where privilege is entrenched and rights are national, not universal, that the Christ child comes. And so the Messiah comes not to the blue-blooded family of the Herodians, but to a penniless, homeless family, soon to be refugees on the run from a reign of terror. 
As the Canadian singer Bruce Coburn puts it, this is, I think, one of the best Christmas songs. I would have played it to you, but we're having technology problems. Uh, wonderful Christmas song, Cry of a Tiny Babe. I'll just read a couple of his verses. The child is born in the fullness of time. Three wise astrologers take note of the signs, come to pay their respects to the fragile little king, get pretty close to wrecking everything. Because the governing body of the Holy Land is that of Herod, a paranoid man who, when he hears there's a baby born king of the Jews, sends death squads to kill all male children under two. But that same bright angel warns the parents in a dream, and they head out for the border and get away clean. And there are others who know about this miracle birth. The humblest of people catch a glimpse of their worth, for it isn't to the palace that the Christ child comes, but to shepherds and street people, to hookers and bums, like a stone on the surface of a still river driving the ripples on forever. Redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. These astrologers, these wise men from the east, as Matthew calls them, cross the Jordan into the chosen land and come to worship a king. They too, at least at first, are seduced by the ideology of nationalistic theology. They head straight for the palace of Herod, because where else would one find a king? They, like the rest of us, find it easy to think that a powerful ruler must come from a family of powerful rulers. From Kennedy to Bush to Clinton, from Tudor to Stuart to Windsor, from Cavendish to Astor to Churchill, we like our political leaders to come from political stock, we like them to have been born to the task. We like our leaders, of course, to be ours and not theirs, preferably children born on our soil. All this is an ideology that is directly challenged by the birth of Jesus and the visit of the Magi, as wise men from a far-off country, wise men who followed another religion, came and worshipped the child of God. Too often we domesticate the story of the birth of Jesus. Too often we use it to privatise our faith. Too often the popular nativity scene of mother, father, baby and visitors creates a Christ for the nuclear family, a Christ who comes to us in the trials and joys of our personal lives. Too often the baby in the manger remains an infantile Christ, divorced from the realities of the public sphere, an object of private devotion and personal comfort. As the theologian Stanley Hauwas puts it, too often the political significance of Jesus' birth, a significance that Herod understood all too well, is lost because the church reads the birth as a confirmation of the assumed position that religion has within the larger framework of politics. That is, the birth of Jesus is not seen as a threat to thrones and empires because religion concerns the private. The Gospel of Matthew, however, knows no distinction between the public, the political, and the private. Jesus is born into time, threatening the time of Herod and Rome. Redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. So Herod, upon hearing the news that wise men from the east have come to Jerusalem, asking about a child who has been born king of the Jews, was deeply concerned. He fears this baby because it reveals the depth of his fragility. A king born to the wrong family, 
A new ruler emerging from the wrong town is an inherent threat to the ideology that sustained his power. And so it is to this day, despite the attempts of many down the centuries to domesticate or assimilate the Christ child. The birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph continues to undermine any attempt to confine his coming to the realm of the private and the personal. The coming of Christ to the margins continues to subvert any attempt to fuse the kingdom of Christ with any kingdom of this world. Because this is not a Messiah for the private world of the family. This is not a Messiah for the parochial world of nationalist ideology. This is a Messiah for all people, for all nations. It was the birth, it was in the birth of Christ that Matthew saw Isaiah's vision fulfilled. Not through a resurgent nation of Israel, but through the Messiah of Israel, drawing kings and rulers and wise men from nations far beyond the reach of Israel's national borders. Matthew tells us that the wise men from the east brought their gifts of gold and frankincense, just as Isaiah said they would. And they worshipped the newborn babe as king, but not as king of Israel alone. He was also their king, the king of all the nations. In the coming of Christ, the borders and identities that we construct for ourselves are consistently challenged. Those who are in Christ are part of his universal kingdom, whatever earthly country we may inhabit. The new dawn that comes with Christ is a new world where nationalistic theology is rendered meaningless. The star of his coming, seen rising by wise men from the east, is a new day, a new age, a new dawn, a new kingdom. Stanley Howass again. The kingdom of Christ is not some inner sanctuary but rather the kingdom is an alternative world, an alternative people, an alternative politics. Jesus is, in his person and in his world, God's embodied kingdom. The temptation for Christians is to equate the kingdom with ideas that we assume represent the best of human endeavour. Freedom, equality, justice, respect for the dignity of each person, and so on. These are all worthy goals that Christians have every reason to support, but they are goals that are not in themselves the kingdom of Christ. The wise men from the East grasp the truth, eventually, that the kingdom of Christ is more than one nation, or one ideology, or one theology. And so they worship the child born in the manger, bringing the gifts of the world to the child who challenges all worldly power. And what about us, then? Where in our world and in our lives will Christ be found? In our private devotions? Yes, I, I hope so. I meet Christ in the quiet moments of prayer. But not only there. In our public life? Yes, again, I hope so, or else the world will continue as before if nobody challenges homelessness and poverty and segregation. In our political life, yes, again, I hope so, 
but never in a way that equates any one political ideology with the inbreaking kingdom of Christ. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. We need faithful followers of Christ to be active across the broad spectrum of mainstream political life. The kingdom may be political, but it is not party political. And as election year dawns, we will need to remember that our allegiance is first and foremost to Christ and to Christ alone. We will need the wisdom of the wise men from the East to see through the pernicious propaganda of thinking that I and mine are in some way special. I am no more nor less a citizen of God's kingdom than any other human being on the face of this earth. And it is to each of us that Christ comes, and it is in him and in him alone that we find our identity. As Paul reminded the Christians in the Roman province of Galatia, those who are in Christ have no place amongst them for any division based on ethnicity or culture or social standing or gender. We must live this truth in our common life together as the people of God in this place where all are welcome and none are excluded. And we must work together at how we then live this truth in our public lives as we engage with the politics of our society. As we stand at the dawn of a new year, may the star of Christ rise before us, guiding us into all truth as redemption rips through the surface of time in the cry of a tiny babe. Amen.